I'm Christian Chiller. Welcome to my podcast, an enthusiastic ramble through whatever has taken my interest the past week or so. Expect technology, games, history, travel, geekery, and as always, much, much more. Welcome to Chinchilla Squeaks, releasing to you on Easter Friday over in Europe. I uh, know that Easter is not a holiday everywhere, and I'm not even religious, but hey, it's a four-day weekend. So, I don't know, maybe you're listening to this after a holiday. Maybe you're listening to this and thinking, what holiday, depending where you are. Either way, it's a holiday where I am, and I think I am probably enjoying some downtime. But... I came and recorded this just before because I had some interesting, juicy, geeky tidbits I wanted to tell you all about. So first up, I think I covered this a few weeks, months back, but now uh, DuckDuckGo has finally announced and released in private beta, and I have signed up, of course, so I'll make a video of it as soon as I'm out of that private beta. They have announced their privacy, speed, and secure-focused browsing application just for Mac. The interesting thing about the DuckDuckGo browser, sort of setting aside all of the other features it just mentioned, which, to be honest with you, are not necessarily unique features of of browsers these days. Plenty of them offer privacy, speed, security, etc., etc. But the interesting thing that DuckDuckGo is doing is it is not forking Chromium or creating its own engine like uh, 99% of browsers or Firefox. It's actually using the system native APIs. So on macOS, this is the WebView, i.e. Safari APIs. So you get the most effective rendering engine you could. Um, And then I'm assuming on Android, it will do something similar with Chrome. Um, But on uh, Windows, I don't know what it's going to do. It is going to be released on Windows, I guess, Edge. So Chromium, effectively. I don't know if Microsoft provides those APIs. Not 100% sure. But still, I find that very interesting. I think it would end up being quite a compelling browser for me to use, maybe even replacing Safari, depending on uh, kind of what other features it comes with. And this is sort of the area where I'm uncertain of. Like uh, Safari I use for a couple of different reasons. One, because it is the most performant on Mac. Two, it integrates with the operating system best. Uh, leveraging all the kind of system extensions like the share widgets and things like that. But also, while Safari is, of course, far inferior to Chrome in terms of extensions, there are some extensions I do use. And will those be available in the DuckDuckGo browser? The blog post is a little unclear on that information. Um, Not really any mention of any of that. It's interesting because it mentions a password manager as a feature Um, But again, I'd kind of want that to sync between devices. Otherwise, it's sort of less useful if I have to have a different password manager between different browsers. But then, of course, if they start offering sync services, you get into privacy issues. You need an account, et cetera, et cetera. Brave tried, still are trying, to do this with um, basically a kind of crypto wallet. And it was generally... Didn't work very well, and then I gave up trying to see if it worked better now, whereas all the others just do a login. It doesn't necessarily equal poor privacy, of course, but uh, 
it just introduces problems. So I'm interested to see what they do. And I look forward to being able to get a copy soon and doing a little bit more detailed roundup. Um, if you're interested in signing up yourself, then you can head over to their blog and you pretty much just have to sign up to um, the beta program through a notification in the mobile app, which I can see myself very easily missing. But still, that's the way they're doing it. So <laughs> watch out for those notifications and uh, enjoy, hopefully. Next, uh, this actually connects up to a couple of different things. Uh, this connects to a post that I put on Medium over on the Geek Culture publication, uh, just published a couple of days ago, on my attempts to switch from Google Workspace, uh, largely because they are finally, or Google being they, are finally um, retiring gra uh, the, the grandfathered free plan that many people had for some time, including myself. I had one that was very, very old, sort of forcing people to either move to the new essentials plan, which actually uh, misses quite a lot of things, or pay. Uh, I mean, I've had Google Workspace effectively, a, a, a inferior version, an inferior version, for the best part of 10 years, so if not more, actually. So I can't really complain, but still I wanted to figure out if there were things I could switch to instead. And I have a post on Geek Culture going through the various things I tried. I won't spoil the article for you here, but one of the things I have been using actually is custom domains for iCloud Mail. I'm already paying for um, Apple One, I think it's called, because I'm a fan of Apple Music, and then for an extra four Australian dollars, because my account is still in Australia, I get Apple TV, Apple Arcade, extra iCloud drive storage, but also there's custom domains and hide my email and a few other things. I can't remember which ones of those are exactly uh, premium features, but I think the domains is. But it has some problems. I actually identify them in my post, but then there's a much more detailed post from uh, Dominic uh, Lautner. Now, what does Dominic Lautner do? Dominic Lautner is... <laughs> Website isn't working. Over on Dominic Lautner's blog, who has been through a similar process. He switched between Zoho, Fastmail, Microsoft 365, and Google Workspace, which in my post are really the main options you're going to have available to you for a sort of unified experience, basically, or at least calendar email. And he outlines... outlines um, seven issues that are present with custom domains. And one of them that is not included, actually, um, that I mentioned in my blog post is it doesn't match calendars. Uh, but he also mentions a few others, uh, some of the more obvious ones, like no catch-all address support that you can kind of see quite easily because it gives you a limited selection of addresses. I found that less of an issue these days. I think I can make do with, I think, the five it gives you. But then there's a few other details it goes into more on the kind of mail server side of things, which is, you know, thanks to Apple's kind of user-friendly interface on top of things get a bit abstracted away. that You might get more like knobs and dials you can tweak with Google Workspace or something like that. So 
There Be Dragons, if you're interested in trying it yourself, just uh, take a look at some of those um, potential problems and how they may or may not affect you if you use it. Next, I'm going to cover, I love a bit of computing history, uh, an article from Ash Parrish on The Verge. It's actually from a month ago, so I'm slightly late with this one. Talking about how, and this is not a unique problem to video games, but video games have been in this cycle for much longer of uh, digital downloads for video games. And how, with digital downloads, do you keep access to games you might have, or libraries you might have, when the provider decides to shut it down because your device is no longer supported. So in February, Nintendo announced it would shut down its 3DS and Wii U storefronts, both of which are reasonably old, but still, there's a lot of users. And this, in theory, means they can't access any of the games that they haven't downloaded anymore. And what does that mean? This is a constant issue with... Um, subscription services and cloud services, of course. But something like a games console for a lot of, especially a casual games console like the 3DS and the Wii U, to a lot of people, they're perfectly happy, keep using them and they won't be able to access things. So what happens in that case? And this um, outlines a, a, a profile of two co-directors of the Video Game History Foundation. And it's so bizarre to think that we now need foundations to preserve digitally distributed video games. It's kind of like a very specific archive.org, I guess. Um, and they're trying somehow to, to uh, retain archives of these games that will get lost. And of course, technically speaking, this is relatively straightforward uh, in theory. But the legal side is where it gets complicated. These consoles from Nintendo's perspective, are old. But from a perspective of copyright, they're not old at all. So in theory, you're not really allowed to archive them. But then if the company is going to do nothing with them, then what's the problem? And this article sort of digs into their efforts in attempting <laughs> to, to do that in, in an industry that, yeah, has no real interest in maintaining legacy, but also doesn't want other people to, even though they're offering to. And I think this is going to be an increasing issue that people will have in all sorts of aspects of digital media of, um, yeah, just getting access to things that you don't really have access to anymore. I mean, we started with this story a long time ago when the infamous legend of uh, uh, Amazon suddenly not giving access to 1984 on Kindle stores because of copyright reasons and could they have picked a better title? You know, this this aspect that uh, it's not really yours and... Um, what happens then? Uh, when do things enter a public domain? When when do they cease to be a business interest, etc., 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 etc.? It's a fascinating article looking into some of those aspects and specifically the section of US law that causes this problem. Um, I don't know how it would work in other countries. I guess it's slightly different. Um, but yeah, interesting problem. Interesting problem that will become more and more prevalent, uh, and especially now as we're starting to tick over into these retiring of certain cloud services. I also found it kind of interesting that it wasn't just one universal Nintendo store, and they had specific ones, actually. That seemed uh, an inefficient way of doing it, but what do I know? <laughs> so, so take a read if that interests you in any way. Next, an article from Technology Review by Eileen Guo and A.D. Rinaldi 
on WorldCoin. Deception exploited deception exploited workers in cash handout. How WorldCoin recruited its first half million test users. Cryptocurrencies and problems. <laughs> Should I say the S word? Uh, are not necessarily new, but this is a new one. A WorldCoin is was a cryptocurrency that was aiming to be fairly distributed sort of based on the concepts of universal basic income. So far, so good. It's received a lot of funding from some very reputable backers who wanted to, for whatever reason, and I can't necessarily, you can't necessarily directly, we'll come to that in a minute, think of financial motivations for them to distribute a cryptocurrency, granted, to people in the developing world that they could then do, well, who knows what with, but you know, in theory, sometimes cryptocurrencies uh, have a value that they could do something with. But <laughs> you saw this coming, didn't you? The They were trying to solve a technical problem, which is, of course, that uh, cryptocurrencies need some kind of identifiable address to tie the currency to, tie a wallet to. And WorldCoin hit upon this idea of using um, biometric data <laughs> to identify a unique individual, also so they can't claim the free currency more than once. Um, and there were incentives as well to get people even to sign up in the first place, in addition to sort of free tokens. But um, this is, uh, you know, giving away biometric data to a company who you're not really sure about to be blunt in jurisdictions where privacy laws can sometimes be sketchy, uh, who are also based in the US where privacy laws are also sketchy. This is where I start to find this interesting in terms of why uh, backers might have backed this in the first place. It's like, is there really a play here for actually building a device that quickly and efficiently captures biometric data? And they have this strange like globe device that does this, although it has its problems. Um, is that really where the money play is? And the kind of cryptocurrency is almost a bit of a, a smokescreen to to just to <laughs> do this in the first place. It's it's a bit dystopian, but I think there's almost more of a naivety there. Not necessarily a dystopian kind of we want to collect people's data, but you know, not necessarily telling these people whose data are collecting the whole story. This is all conjecture on my part, <laughs> but uh, that's one of the ones. Um, things I'm thinking through, and some of the lengths that they went to 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 convince people to do this as well, and, and in essence spending a lot of money and getting nothing in return so far, apart from this data, which apparently has not even been um, as effective and as reliable as it, as it could be. Um, there's been a lot of people being able to register twice, it not really working, taking lots of tries, then uh, getting the wallet was also difficult. You need an email address, which starts to then get to a point of then what's the point of collecting the other data? And not everyone in the developing world has an email address. Um, and even if they do have an email address, then what do they do? How do you get access to a wallet, et cetera, et cetera? So it's quite a fascinating dig into a whole bunch of issues with maybe a well-meaning project, but its assumptions making all sorts of mistakes along the way. Or maybe it's something darker and creepier that we don't know about that 
and this getting these images of people staring into this orb it looks like something out of some kind of dystopian novel as it is but yeah go and have a read it's a really good read um and make your own mind up let me know uh head over to christianchiller.com to find my contact details and let me know your thoughts what do you think what do you think's really going on here story of the month of course is twitter and various interactions with various other people <laughs> that uh, who will remain nameless. You know who I mean because their role in the company has somewhat flitted backwards and forwards. But this ever-increasing desire people have for an edit button. And I must admit, I don't, I don't really care. I don't really get it. Um, on other social networks where it's not always about... Um, the kind of transient nature it's about more about longevity having editing makes sense to me and you can see that people have edited you can't necessarily see what they did but you can see they did it with twitter i don't know i kind of think putting out spelling errors and then deleting them and recreating them or apologizing in a, in a thread is, is kind of half the point of it it's warts and all if you make a mistake you make a mistake um obviously we get into territory here of you know, trying to cover your tracks and things like that. That's a kind of different conversation. But those casual edits, I don't know. I don't necessarily see why they're necessary, if it's just a typo or something. But anyway, the article goes into thinking about why and how it could work and the problems, some of these problems of um, yeah, rewriting something that is supposed to be very momentary. Moment, you know what I mean. Um, but then how could it work from a technical perspective? Is it a limited window like you get in Gmail? You know, Gmail doesn't always send your email immediately. It gives you this strange window to undo. And maybe that's how it works. You can edit up to five minutes, for example. Fix those 3 a.m. typos, but you can't go and edit two months later, for example. And just I think just understanding where a lot of people will say, oh, why can't they just add an edit button? It's not that hard. And actually thinking about some of the repercussions of that. And the article goes into that. Um, yeah, the, the writer was uh, Chris Stokel Walker. Um, and uh, yeah, if you've ever wondered why can't they just do it, go and have a read. And maybe make a bit more sense to you why it's a bit more complicated than it may initially appear. Finally, on articles from other people, this just came out in the past couple of days. It was covered fairly widely. This one is specifically on CNET from Russell Holly. Is going into my gaming uh, crowd. D&D Beyond, a digital tool that uh, many people use to supplement their Dungeons & Dragons game, is being acquired by Hasbro, the current owners of Dungeons & Dragons, for $146 million. Two things that surprised me here. Um, I honestly didn't realise Hasbro didn't own it <laughs> because it has exclusivity on almost all sorts of content. So they must have a very tight deal. But it's actually owned by a company called Fandom, and the fact that Hasbro are now bringing it under the, the same umbrella is, is interesting because I think to a lot of people, for all intensive purposes, it was anyway. What effect is this going to have on price? It is a little expensive, so maybe having it in-house will reduce the price because I, I hazard that uh, some of the reasons for that price would be because Fandom had to pay Hasbro licensing fees. And if they're not paying licensing fees, then that could reduce the cost. I think the second thing there was the, the price. It's interesting in the world of startups, 146 million seems low, but in the world of role-playing tools, that feels like quite a lot, <laughs> I guess, and the value of it. 
uh, it makes its money from subscriptions and marketplace and things like that. And um, yeah, just to see where where role playing has got to in terms of commerciality is quite fascinating, actually. Now, a little bit more from me. I already mentioned earlier my uh, blog post switching away from um, from Google, from Google Workspace. I've got a couple of videos I want to tell you about. First, uh, it was actually the video from the last Chinchilla Squeaks that you may have seen already, Hardening JavaScript with Chris Koval. And we covered quite a lot of topics. It was quite an interesting interview. Head over to YouTube or last episode of the podcast to listen or watch if you haven't already. And then I just released the edited version of uh, using Front Matter. It calls itself headless CMS for VS Code, but it's not really. It's kind of more like of a I don't know, like a content interface to to content in Visual, Visual Studio Code. Sort of mixed opinions on it. Uh, go and have a watch of the video and, and make your own mind up and let me know what you think. I'm just putting together the final edit for the last video I did, which was switching from. Heroku to Vercel. I'm just editing that at the moment. And I have actually quite a backlog of videos I'm editing at the moment. So there'll be a lot more to announce very soon. I just saw a lot come at once and I'm still working my way through it. But they're the main things to talk about there. I'm also going to do a uh, hands-on review soon. I've acquired a new e-reader device. Um, The Books. Books Poke an Android-based tablet with an e-ink screen, and I'm quite enjoying it. So I'm going to do a little wrap-up of that soon. Um, a couple more weeks sort of spent with it. I think I'm about to go on holiday, and I think it'll be a good time to really go deep with it and see what I think. All of that aside, uh, that's me for one week. So thank you very much for joining me, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at chrischinchilla.com, where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter, and find all of my writing games, work, and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me. And if you want to get even closer to what I do, join my Discord server for behind-the-scenes discussions and helping me produce my shows and work.